The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. I'm quite sad that it's ending, and I think it's right that it's ending. I don't, I don't think it should go on. And I don't want to be Stan Beeman anymore, really, but it's going to be hard to let go and say goodbye. Hello and welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcast and your host for the series which goes behind the scenes of the show. Later, I'll chat with actor Noah Emmerich about how his character, Stan Beeman, is doing and how it has felt to work on a multi-season TV show for the first time. We'll also hear from Katie Ennis about how the previously on teasers that appear at the beginning of each episode are made. But first, showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields share some thoughts about episode 603, Urban Transport Planning. Today, I'm in gregarious Gowanus with Joe Weisberg. Hi, Joe. Hi, June. And Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. Hey, June. We have some helicopters going overhead, but we're going to power through. Elizabeth said that if anyone else did what Paige did, they'd be off the team. I'm sure that's true. Would they be alive even? I mean, if a stranger knew what Paige knows and they messed up, I feel pretty confident that they'd be dead. Why this bleak, dark view of these characters? Yeah, you don't kill people on your own surveillance team. Yeah, that would be terrible publicity. Hans was killed because he got infected. She killed Hans to save him from suffering. The fact is she didn't kill Hans as much as she euthanized him. Okay. If she could have saved his life, she would have. And she would have gone to great lengths to risk her own life to save Hans. He was on her team. But the minute he exposed himself to that disease, he was dead. And the only question was, was it going to be quick by her bullet or very slow and painfully? So you're telling me that it's possible if you are just kind of reveal yourself not to be the most effective operator, spy, agent, whatever term is appropriate, you can be released from the team? Not only that, but because Elizabeth is so effective, I'm sure she could find a way to release somebody from the team without them even realizing that they were being fired. Yeah, get them to quit. Get them to quit or tell them job well done and then this is no longer needed or tell them you've been exposed and plaque's going to go up in your name somewhere, but in order to protect you, we're going to, we got to cycle you out. This is really worrying to me because I'm realizing this is the last time we'll be taping this podcast. Like, have I been let go? (laughs) <laughs> no, June doesn't June. know about the next three seasons of the show <laughs> June, not at all <laughs> Not at all I would never It's just know that it. the show's ending <laughs> When we talked about 601 I asked if Philip is a bad capitalist And, you know, seeing how stressed he is I'm wondering if he isn't just predisposed to stress Whether it's yeah. about overcoming capitalism Or making go of a small family business It's like, he's super stressy This may be something about us, like Everybody we know is super stressy. Are you surrounded by a lot of not stressed out people? I know where you work. Is, is everybody mellow over at Slade? Are people relaxed, going about their days calmly? Or people more like, I mean, over here, it's people are stressed out. I'd say, though, in fairness to Philip, 
if business were going better, he'd be less stressed. Okay. All right. I think he has some good reasons to be stressed right now. We see Philip, indeed, reading a motivational business book in this episode, uh, which feels to me like the capitalist equivalent of the work of Marx and Engels. And it has to be said, such books have actually outlived those great men's work. In your head, is the travel agency still a cover or is Philip genuinely, totally, without any reserve, committed to making it work? And that's that really, truly is his life now. 100% the latter. He's He's absolutely become a businessman, wants to thrive there, believes in the kind of American ideal of becoming self-made, making it grow, making it bigger, having success, making money, being able to support his family. He's integrated all those values. I don't think it means that he has necessarily in his heart or in his mind actually even deserted his old old values. You know, I think mm-hmm. if you talk to him about Marx and socialism, I think he still believes in that stuff too. He just also has lived here so long and seen the way people live and he's become a part of that and he likes that stuff too and he wants to fit in and he wants those things that people have and do here and he sees the good sides of these values too. Mm-hmm. He, he He's probably a one of a kind, a real one of a kind right. in that he can have both of those things in his personality at the same time, but it is genuine. It is not a cover for him anymore in that same way. One thing that shocked me in this episode I thought that Henry had a scholarship. I was shocked when it really hit me that these communists, so-called, were sending their son to a fee-paying school. I mean, where I come from, that is very much not cool. I was really surprised by how mad I felt at Philip and Elizabeth. Like, that, to me, was much more of a like abrogation of their values than anything that they've done. Did that ever come into your head, or was it It just was super useful to, to like have him be a success and be out of town and all of those things? Well, of course, when things started out, he was on a larger scholarship. There's still some scholarship dollars there, but not enough to cover everything. I see. You're right. I think this is something where what was, in their view, more important to Henry became the priority. And that's a very natural parenting thing. Henry is an American boy, and his parents have to see that. And certainly Philip sees that. We saw last season how anxious he was to go to this prep school. They want to make it, they want to continue it for him. I also think that distinction would be lost on Elizabeth. I I get what you're saying, but Elizabeth, who is the one who might get exercised about something like that, I I don't think matters to her. It's not like she recognizes that the public school system in America partakes of that virtue of Soviet socialism. (laughs) She's, you know, for her, it's fuck everything in America. Claudia gives Elizabeth yet another assignment because, you know, why not? And the target is a supervisor in a warehouse. How would the Russians identify targets like that? I mean, this is the pre-internet era. How would they and how did they isolate a guy who works in a warehouse? How how would they find targets like that back then? Well, first of all, there were all kinds of publicly available lists and Companies have records of who works there, employee lists, things that are either publicly available or that they could steal or they could hire other spies who work in places, clerical workers who could they could get things from or, or any kind of worker in a company they could get things from when they wanted it. So anything from spies to public records. But you want to know something funny. You talk about the pre-internet era. One of the researchers told us, which made me laugh because it was so obvious, is in the pre-internet era, there was something called the company directory. 
And all you had to do was get your hands on the company directory and you had everybody's name, everybody's number. Then you could just go to the phone book and look them up and their name and address was in it. So the truth is today, you at least need the sophistication to hack onto the company's server. Back then, all you needed to do was give 30 bucks to a janitor to pick up a copy of the company directory and you had everything on everyone. It's also, it's not really a new operation that she's given. It's, it's the next step in the general, in the rental operation, mm. because that guy works for the company that makes the sensor. You're talking about, you just have to find this person like this. You just have to get another spy. Having worked on this show, and I realize, Joe, that you have a very specific background, but do you sort of see people sitting in coffee shops now and think, who are they surveilling? Or do you... Think about any company and think, well, which one of the people in this company is actually a spy? Or like when you see an apartment building, how many apartments are in fact safe houses? Watching the show makes me wonder about all those things all the time. I mean, my own personal level of suspicion and paranoia about that stuff, about actual espionage is is pretty low, you know, in terms of walking down the street. In the time that I've lived in New York, since I left the CIA, I one time witnessed a piece of surveillance. That's once in, you know, 25 years. It's not zero. Right. But it's once. Now let's hear from Noah Emmerich, a.k.a. Stan Beeman. Season six takes place in 1987, which is a three-year jump from the end of season five. And Stan seems like he's in a really good place. He seems different, though. Yeah, yeah. He seems different to me too. I mean, he's he's relatively happy. He's married, settled down with a good woman, seems to have found some peace in his home life, has given up the quest for the illegals and sort of washed his hands of the whole spy game, mm-hmm. is back into traditional American law enforcement, you know, crime and bank robberies and corrupt politicians, which I think to stand as a breath of fresh air from the dark morass of international espionage and he's sort of back where he was before we found him in our story when this story began it was stan's transferring into counterintelligence so it was a new world for him as it was for us and i think he didn't particularly enjoy it it was too too high a human cost with too little result and he actually seems much happier than them because when he did transfer he was in a really bad place from having had this very you know, troubling undercover assignment. It's true. He's found some light. I think he's gone into the light somewhat. It's true that when we found him, he'd just come out of this undercover operation, which we never really learned too much about. It was when he thought he was restarting his life and coming to D.C. to do this work. He, it actually got worse as opposed to better. And finally, at the end of last season, we see him really contemplating giving it up and when we come back here, we found that he did, and he has. And in fact, it's it's made his life a happier a happier life. I mean, to a certain extent, it's true. He's having a dinner party with vegetables. He's uh, you know he's having <laughs> he's not cooking mac and cheese anymore. Mm-hmm. It seems like it's a really fun dinner party, but he's still got that one case. He's got that one yeah. couple. He can't quite get away from counterintelligence. No, he really wanted to put that to bed and but they asked him to stay on because he had developed a relationship with them so it's the one hangover from his life in counterintelligence that persists and then he gets even more re-embroiled because uh he's told that oleg's in town that's got to throw a stamp for a yeah that's a big shock i mean the, the the sad thing is you know 
of course, as must be with our show, but Stan starts out pretty jovial and happy and pretty quickly gets sucked back in into the mix. The Jays are so, so cruel. They are. So he just has a little glimmer of happiness and freedom and pretty quickly he gets pulled down into it all again and and the darkness <laughs> takes over yet again. Oh, the old familiar place. You know, you said that he's happier chasing murderers, corrupt politicians, but... You know, I wonder if that's really true because, I mean, he literally saved the world with Oleg's help, even though I'm sure it's fun. It's fun chasing yeah. know, corrupt mayors. But don't you think that that current work would seem kind of inconsequential after that? Well, it's a, that's a really interesting question in that, and it's a question I've asked myself as a, as a human being myself outside of the character, especially having done this this job, is what it all comes to, what the counterintelligence works adds up to in the end because obviously there's a tremendous toll human costs life hours families careers and you know it's it's possible to look at it from a certain point of view where you think it doesn't add up to much i mean preventing international disaster is clearly the highest priority although i think within the counterintelligence agencies themselves they don't see it that way i think it's beating the opponent which is the priority so yes, Stan did amazing thing and really helped the world in that moment mm-hmm. with Oleg. But he's seen so much blood, so much cost, so much darkness. And other than that event you refer to, it's not really tangible what it's adding up to. What matters who has this secret or that secret or knows this about our government or knows that about their government in the end, is it saving lives really? And in some cases, clearly it is. But in many cases, it's not. It feels like a game of brinksmanship between opposing rivals that doesn't really add up to much, but costs a tremendous amount. Yeah, and he's lost friends, multiple lost friends. Lost so many friends, yeah. lovers and friends, his partner, innocent people swept up in the maelstrom of this craziness. And I think there's something just square and clean cut about traditional federal law enforcement that appeals to Stan, that is, is very black and white. You know, someone robs the bank, you catch the robber. Someone steals from the government, that's stopped and they're put in jail and justice is served. And that clarity and that precision is not found in the, in the world of counterintelligence. It's a much murkier, darker, blurrier picture. Never really possible to know where you stand or what impact your work has had. I think Stan's a little simpler in terms of what he, his appetite as he saw himself. I think, you know, I mean, we can go deeper into his backstory, but how, as he saw himself serving his country, I think domestic law enforcement is somehow simpler for him to digest. So when he does meet up again with all like this guy who's not just a contact from his past, but he's had this very intense connection with who he put his career on the line for in season five. He warns him off, don't get involved with this. You think that's doing his job fighting back the Russians, or do you think it is like a personal connection that he just didn't want his buddy to be in trouble? Yeah, I think it's personal. I think Stan really does care for Oleg, has come to respect Oleg, knows that Oleg was good to his word, and feels that Oleg is a human being that he relates to, not a Russian as much as a human being. And when he sees Oleg back, I mean, although Stan is, as we said, out of the counterintelligence game, except for Sophia and Gennady, he goes to Oleg to give him an authentic, sincere heads up. Don't do this. You don't have any protection here. You're not under, you have no 
political asylum protection here whatsoever. You're here as a civilian. If you're doing something that you're not supposed to be doing, you could end up ruining your life. Not being sent back to Russia, but being sent to an American penitentiary forever. I mean, obviously, he's gone to great lengths to protect Oleg back in, in the Soviet Union. I think it would give Stan some sense of accomplishment and peace knowing that Oleg got out and is living his life peacefully as he desires. So I think the threat to that of Oleg's return is concerning to Stan. And I think there's some domestic agenda in terms of just whatever you're doing can't be too good. So go away, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but I do think the priority in a weird way is uncharacteristically in this world is for Oleg's well-being. Has this season been different? Yeah, it has somehow. I mean, this season holds mortality in its breadth in a way to metaphorically. So we knew it was our last season. I think there's something even from day one coming back, knowing that it was our last day one coming back to me permeated somehow the energy of the experience in a beautiful way, in a hard way. In every department, this this is our last crack at this. So the writers, I think, were very meticulous. They always are, but even more so, more rewrites than normal, more last-minute changes, more scrutiny. This is the last episode one. This is the last time we'll be on this set. This is the last time we'll do this. Our story's really coming to an end. My gosh, we're going to say goodbye, not only to these characters, but to each other. And hopefully, of course, we can continue our friendships and relationships, but it's never the same. It may be better, it may be worse, but it's not going to be the same. It touches the mortality nerve in ourselves. I feel like it must be being quite old, knowing that you have, say, less than 10 years to live, which, you know, I can't imagine, but but I can, I mean, yeah. as we all do. And I feel like there's something about that that resonates in this experience. It has a, It's the finiteness of life and the inevitability of end, which is which is a quite powerful force. It's almost like being a condemned man because they're the only ones yeah. who know when they're going to die. Yeah, maybe. yeah, maybe. You know when the, when the exactly. show's going to die. Yeah, we know. You know, now it's whatever it is, March 7th that we finished was going to be February 20. <laughs> but, you know, so that's a little reprieve, a, a last appeal to the court. <laughs> uh, but yeah, knowing that changes everything. Youth is, you really don't, comprehend or hold mortality in a reality so you have this freedom which is a different and once you really have come face to face with your own mortality i think all of life changes not negatively necessarily but it certainly changes it has a different texture and a different tone and a different richness and a different appreciation and some somehow i feel that this was our season of mortality this was your first multi-season tv Mm. commitment how did that work out incredibly you know i mean i can't believe it's been six seasons and it's been incredible like all the things i was apprehensive about or afraid of and begin committing to a series turned out to be wonderful gifts the continuity the return i've never returned to a job before just returning to the same people is such a wonderful feeling the family that we've built with each other the comfort the familiarity the the gentleness, there's a gentleness to it somehow in, in the familiarity that's it's not as bracing and startling as new, which is also exciting and different in its own way. But there's something very, it feels like it gets a chance, has a chance to, to get settle a little deeper. It's a more relaxed posture, especially with a bunch of actors and writers. You know, everyone wants to make sure they're seen. Well, obviously, we all want to be seen or we wouldn't be in this business, but you feel seen, you know, you're going to be seen. So there's some trust and faith in that having an audience that we carry with us that carries us with them like is a wonderful feeling 
although it's quite abstract, it's a real relationship, uh, which I've never had, you know. I'm quite sad that it's ending, and I think it's right that it's ending. I don't, I don't think it should go on, and I don't want to be Stan Beeman anymore, really, but it's going to be hard to let go and say goodbye. What's your strongest memory of the show? You know, I was just looking through photos the other day, weirdly, and I saw a picture of us shooting the pilot. And I'm remembering now, I guess as we do when we look back, the very beginning. Not that I would have said that yesterday, that was my strongest memory, but just the beginning of it all, the sort of, the f the richness, the fertility of all that. I'm looking at a picture of seeing Joe and Gavin O'Connor, who directed the pilot, who's a dear friend. We all look younger, first of all, which is startling because <laughs> it's only been six years, but it's a big six years. I remember very well the feeling of it. Because when we shot the pilot, it was just a pilot. We didn't know if it was going to be a job. It was going to go on forever again, or maybe one season, or maybe half a season. You never know. I remember auditioning for this show and making a tape because it was an unprecedented experience for me. I went in. They, they were interested in me. We had some meetings. We talked. They want to see you in the character re saying the words. So I went in and with Carrie and Matthew. Matthew was also sort of reading and... We read some scenes and they said, great, this is great. We want you. We're going to do this. Great. We'll send the tape off to LA and have the, everyone else look at it. And then they called me the next day and said, so we're really embarrassed, but uh, didn't record sound. <laughs> the video is great, but we can't hear what you're saying. So could you, would you come back and do it again? Which is really, I've never had that happen before. I remember that. I remember meeting Joe Weisberg at a coffee shop in Brooklyn to talk about the show and what his plans were and what his vision was because you read one script, you don't know what it's going to be. It's hard to sign a five-year contract based upon 30 or 45 pages, you know. Has working on the show changed you? I've certainly changed over the last six years. Assigning cause is harder, but I, I would say yes is my first thought, but I, and I know the follow-up is how, and I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I mean, certainly just the muscle of doing so much acting so continuously. I've never done that before in such a long stretch. So I feel more relaxed and comfortable. I've definitely gotten used to a faster pace than I ever was used to. It was one of my apprehensions coming in was the pace of it all. Because you've mostly been a movie guy. Yeah, and it's a, just a different pace. I was sort of resentful and wrestling and struggling with it. Now I go to a movie set and work, and I'm like, "What, guys, let's get going here. What are we doing? We're wasting half a day. How much do you need to light it? Also, I guess I feel like I'm actually an actor in a way that I'm not sure I felt what were before. You before. I don't know, a journeyman, sometimes actor. Now I'm really an actor in a way. And I also feel like I'm really a young, aspiring director as well. That's a, maybe the biggest change. The appetite for directing, which I had before the show began and I came in when I met with them. I said, listen, you guys, this is something I really want to do. This seems like a really good opportunity. Are you open? And they were, and they were good to their word. And they, they really helped me along and they're incredibly supportive, nurturing, loving men. I'm so grateful for that. I guess that's in a way the biggest change. I really feel like I have the beginnings of a directing career. Finally this week, when I was talking with editor Amanda Pollock, whom we'll hear from later in the season, I asked her how the previously on teasers are made, and she connected me with Katie Ennis, an editor who has often created those montages. I began by asking Katie how long she's worked on The Americans. I started on season three. And I believe you've had numerous jobs. What have you done here? I have. I began season three as an assistant editor. Uh, and then worked my way up to this year where I am now an official editor and I'm cutting two episodes. What's the process for learning and, and moving up from assistant editor to editor? The most traditional way is that you start as a post-PA 
And then eventually you join the union, you get assistant jobs. And once you're an assistant, you're allowed to be on the Avid and you're working with the editor and they will let you basically sit in with them and they it becomes a mentor relationship. Uh-huh. And you, you start by cutting a scene here and there, doing the sound work, cutting in music. And then over time, as you build a relationship with certain editors, you get to co-edit usually. Mm -hmm. So on this show, I began season three as an assistant editor. And then season four, I got the opportunity to co-edit an episode with Dan Valverde, who um, is amazing. I had actually worked with him on a previous show on Royal Pains and then came on to the Americans with him. So I I got to co-edit with him in season four. I co-edited with Sherry Bylander in season five. And then in season six, the schedule sort of opened up in a way that there was room for me to take one on my own, and and it's gone really well so far. You have to know how to use the Avid, I presume, before you get the assistant editor job, but you're not officially allowed to use it until you are an an assistant editor. Yes, within the union, you're not allowed to be on an Avid unless you're an assistant. But that's also why a lot of people go the indie route Mm. at first and, and kind of get their bearings. And, you know, you can work on short films and web series and And it works out really well to be on those more challenging, low-budget things because you learn how to fix problems. You learn a lot about writing because you're often having to rewrite (laughs) the film in post when you're on an indie because they almost never get all the scenes they're supposed to get. (laughs) That's amazing. You have often worked on the previously on montages. What do you get from the writer's room when you're tasked with putting one of these together? At this point... The writers actually weigh in after we've already cut our first recap. We've all been on the show for so long that there's a good understanding of story in the post-production department. A lot of the people have been there since the beginning. So what we usually do is you get the editors cut together and you watch the show and you kind of ask yourself, okay, what are the three main storylines here and what do I need to know to make these three stories clear? It also helps to have just a really good memory to remember what's happened in the past seasons, in the past episodes. Basically, what I do is I I will watch the episode down and write notes what I think the main points are. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of just rack my brain and make a little outline and then put it all together to tell a story. And then we show the writers and they'll weigh in on if they think story beats are missing, if they want more or less of something. But that way it helps to just sort of have like, okay, here's two minutes of things we can include and you tell us which way to go from there. Recaps can be really tricky because sometimes you don't want to say too much. You don't want to tip your hat about what's going to happen in the episode too much. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be manipulative. You don't want to give things away. You definitely don't want to ruin any surprises when there's old characters that reoccur. Although sometimes it's important to remind people who they are. So it's a really delicate balance. It is very much writing. It's having that writer's brain and understanding how to do it all in 45 seconds. I was going to say, how long are they typically? (laughs) About 45 seconds to a minute. It's fun on a show like The Americans because the characters very rarely ever say exactly what they mean or what you want them to say. It's so much of it is done in subtext and in the looks that they 
give to one another. And the other complication that you have in this show is that the main characters especially, but many of the characters are often in disguise. Do you avoid having Philip and Elizabeth in operational disguises? Has that been an issue? Not that much of an issue. Usually if we have them in disguise, I'll try and then have a scene when they're out of disguise right next to it so you see the, the change that's occurred. But most often they're in what we call light disguise, mm-hmm. which is just glasses or a wig, and it's it's pretty easy to tell. But every so often, if it's a little confusing, we'll just find a way to clarify it by having their voice playing underneath. So at least you know the character voice and you understand who it is. So you can kind of manipulate. You sometimes will tweak the audio that didn't necessarily go with that image or things like that. Oh, yes. We do a lot of that where you're seeing image from a different scene and audio from from something else. And, and we'll also say there's a three-minute scene where some really key things happen, but we only need to show three of those beats. We'll, we'll massively condense the action and you'll sort of just see the highlights of that scene. It's an interesting trick because you do also have to make sure that you're not changing the meaning of the scene or the right. intention of the line. So it's a it's a very fine balance. So when you go back to the old episodes to find this material, how much do you have to watch just to reassure yourself that, oh yeah, I remembered that right? Yeah, there's a few tricks. We have in the Avid a, a little folder that has every episode of the Americans in it. Yeah. So at any time I can click on an episode and scroll through and, and find the scene that I'm looking for. I also play this game with my producers, David and Crystal, who have just insanely amazing, mind-boggling memories for the details of the show. I often will go into the office and quiz them and be like, Crystal, David, I'm looking for this line for this scene. I forget what episode it's from. Where was it? And then Crystal immediately will be like, oh, well, that was episode 210, probably around the 30-minute mark. How long does it take, generally speaking, to make one of these? Probably within a day, I can get a rough cut together. So that's watching the episode down, writing my notes, brainstorming, and then beginning to pull clips and and editing them around. So I, I can get a rough cut done in a day, and then it's good to sort of walk away and then come back and watch it again the next day. And then I'll, I'll whittle it down to something that's, that's more in the ballpark of the right time limit. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll get it down to a minute, a minute 20. And then at that point, usually we'll show it to the Jays and they'll weigh in. And then we usually do, you know, another couple of rounds of notes Mm -hmm. at that point until we get it to the the very fine tuned version that you see on the screen. Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields, Noah Emmerich, and Katie Ennis. Thanks also to Daniel Schrader for recording assistance and to the Americans' Sarah Nolan for organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing episode 604, Mr. and Mrs. Teacup, with some very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening. Thank you.